Well, hello and welcome to the iFormerX podcast, where we explore the evidence that informs ambulatory care pharmacy practice. My name is Stuart Haynes, and I'm the host of the iFormerX podcast. Hypertension is perhaps the most common chronic disease encountered in clinical practice, and the prevalence of high blood pressure among the oldest adults is very high. Among the oldest old, those age 80 and older, More than 80% have high blood pressure, if we define high blood pressure as anything consistently greater than 130 over 80. While a significant proportion of the population is not being optimally treated and are not at goal, there are many patients who are taking medications unnecessarily. Clinical inertia goes both ways. Practitioners often fail to start medications when they're needed, And conversely, practitioners fail to stop medications when they are no longer necessary. Deprescribing has been a hot topic in recent years, so we haven't had a lot of evidence to support deprescribing practices, particularly for chronic illnesses like hypertension. Most deprescribing recommendations are based on expert opinion or epidemiological studies. So that's why I'm hopeful that the recently published optimized study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association in May 2020 might give us some insights about deprescribing and de-escalating antihypertensive therapy in older adults. And here to talk with me about the optimized study and its implications in practice are Daniel Longyor and Dr. Katura Weaver from Geisinger, an integrated health system and health plan based in central Pennsylvania. Dr. Longyor is System Director, Knowledge Management for Pharmacy, and Dr. Weaver is a Medication Management Pharmacist Specialist with a strong interest in cardiology. Uh, now, Dan's been a longtime contributor to iFormerX and maintains our hypertension resource page, which includes the key clinical trials and guidelines that every practitioner should know about. So, Dan, it's great to have you back on the iFormerX podcast, and Katura. Thank you so much for becoming a first-time contributor. It's great to have you here. Welcome. Stuart, it's great to be back. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Stuart, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So before we get started, I want you to imagine you're seeing LR, an 83-year-old African-American man, in the geriatric assessment clinic today. And LR appears to be in frail health and is underweight. The patient has a long-standing history of high blood pressure, He states he was diagnosed back in the 1980s and has been taking medications for, quote, years and years. Uh, He reports no personal history of cardiovascular disease, but he states that his younger sister, who is 80 years old, has diabetes, kidney problems, and had a stroke last year. And his older brother died at the age of 58 from a heart attack. His son, who is in his 60s, also has diabetes. The patient has been taking lisinopril 40 milligrams daily, hydrochlorothiazide 25 milligrams daily, and amlodipine 10 milligrams daily for about three years now to control his blood pressure. And he states that he's been on a lot of different medications over the years. He currently weighs 132 pounds. His BMI is 18.7. His blood pressure today is 144 over 64, and a CHEM-7 was drawn this morning. The results are not yet available, but based on his labs drawn six months ago, his electrolytes are all within normal limits at that time, and his estimated GFR was 42 mils per minute. You also note that his A1C was 6%. 
and his LDL cholesterol was 136. His HDL was 38, and his triglycerides were 88 milligrams per deciliter a few months ago. So, Katura, before we talk about the study you reviewed in your commentary, can you tell us a little bit about some of the things that are kind of going through your mind in a case like this? What additional information might you want to collect and assess during this encounter? And are there any additional treatment options you'd be considering at this point? Stuart, one of the first things I noticed about this patient was their BMI and their weight. So their BMI was only 18.7, so patient is underweight. And I'd want to inquire if this has been a recent weight loss for the patient or if this is the patient's baseline or kind of standard weight. And if it is a recent weight loss, we would want to dig deeper for any possible causes here. Another thing I take note of is this patient's strong family history. The patient has a sister that has diabetes, renal disease, and a history of stroke, as well as a brother um, with an early cardiovascular death, so they had passed from an MI. Looking further, another thing I've noted in this patient case is the patient's blood pressure. So the blood pressure in this case is 144 over 64. And according to the ACC AHA hypertension guidelines, typically we say a ghoul blood pressure for most patients is less than 130 over 80. Now, there may be several practitioners that would say this blood pressure goal may not be quite fitting for this patient. So in order to accurately pick a blood pressure goal for this patient, I think we would need to know a little bit more information. So I'd first want to know where this blood pressure reading was taken. Was it taken in the office or was it taken at home? Next, I'd also like to know if the patient has any home blood pressure readings available. Uh, We know that white coat hypertension can be a problem for patients. And so obtaining some home blood pressure readings might be helpful to see if the blood pressure is still elevated at home. Another thing I'd like to do is inquire more about this patient's social circumstances. So I'd want to know where does the patient live and whom does he live with, if anybody, maybe the patient lives alone. I'd also want to know if the patient's had any recent falls. In addition, does the patient have any memory problems or any dementia? And is he able to perform activities of daily living by himself? The reason all these things are important is, again, going back to trying to pick a blood pressure goal that's appropriate for this patient. For example, if he does live in an assisted living facility or a skilled nursing home, if he's having falls, if he has any sort of cognitive impairment, I would probably lean towards a more relaxed goal of less than 150 over 90. The next thing I would normally want to look at is a calculated 10-year ASCVD risk score. Um, But in this case, the patient's age doesn't allow us to use this calculator, as the calculator is only validated for patients between the age of 20 to 79. However, as a general rule of thumb, we can assume this patient's risk would be over 10% because his age is over 75 years old. So in general, we can assume this patient would have a higher 10-year ASCVD risk. I do also want to note that this patient is on three first-line hypertensive medications. So he's on an ACE inhibitor, a thiazide diuretic, and a calcium channel blocker. Yet his blood pressure is still a little on the higher end if we're thinking about a goal of less than 130 over 80. So I'd want to figure out, is this patient taking their medications every day and are they taking them appropriately? In addition, I would want to know if the patient's taking any over-the-counter or herbal supplements that could be contributing to this elevated blood pressure. 
So Katura, uh, let's talk about the results of the study you reviewed for your iFormerX commentary. The paper was published online in JAMA in May 2020, and it's entitled Effect of Antihypertensive Medication Reduction versus usual care on short-term blood pressure control in patients with hypertension age 80 years and older, the Optimize Randomize Clinical Trial. And for those in our audience who haven't read the paper, can you give us a brief summary of the study methods and the major findings? Optimize was a randomized, unblinded, non-inferiority trial conducted in 69 primary care sites in England that aimed to establish whether antihypertensive medication reduction is possible without significant changes in systolic blood pressure control or adverse events during a 12-week follow-up period. Patients enrolled in this study were 80 years of age or older and deemed to be appropriate for medication reduction by their primary care physician. All enrolled patients were to have a systolic blood pressure lower than 150 millimeters of mercury and to be receiving at least two antihypertensive medications. 569 participants were randomized one-to-one to to a strategy of antihypertensive medication reduction, which they deemed the active removal of one antihypertensive medication, or usual care, which they deemed continuation of their current medications. Patients were excluded if they had a history of heart failure due to left ventricular dysfunction or myocardial infarction or stroke within the preceding 12 months, secondary hypertension, or if they lack capacity to consent to the study. The primary endpoint in this study was maintaining a systolic blood pressure lower than 150 millimeters of mercury at a 12-week follow-up. This was achieved by 86.4% in the medication reduction group versus 87.7% in the usual care group. P-value for non-inferiority was 0.01, showing there was no difference between groups. Secondary outcomes were the proportion of participants in the intervention group who maintained medication reduction and between group differences in frailty, quality of life, adverse effects, serious adverse events, and change in systolic and diastolic blood pressure over 12 weeks. I do note that the mean change in systolic blood pressure was 3.4 millimeters of mercury in participants and there was no statistically significant differences between frailty, quality of life, adverse effects, or serious adverse events at follow-up. Well, Dan, the uh, optimized study is one of the largest prospective deprescribing studies ever conducted, but it, it only enrolled 465 patients. So this study isn't as large as an outcome-driven study like so many of the landmark hypertension treatment studies that we are so familiar with and and which inform our practice today. So I'm wondering, what do you perceive are the key strengths of the study and potential weaknesses? Are there any potential confounders or sources of bias that you think might have impacted the results? And what about the generalizability of the study? Stuart, I'll tell you, when I read this, uh, I I had high hopes, and I think there is some great information that comes out of this. So when I look at this, there there are strengths, and and the number one strength that stands out to me is just that that these authors have continued the conversation about deprescribing. 
I know and I recognize when I read this study that this is not the ultimate randomized, double-blind, usual care control trial that we're used to seeing, but it means that the topic is being brought up in journal clubs, it's being brought up in podcasts like this, and this one trial isn't going to be the definitive answer to whether we should de-prescribe antihypertensive medicines to everyone that we, we meet and who meet this inclusion criteria. It's really not possible. Because in order for us to apply this to our patients, they have to control for so many confounding variables. In the patient population that was included here and the patient population that we're seeing in ambulatory care, there are just way too many confounding variables, disease states, comorbidities, um, social issues that we couldn't take into account and work controlled for in this study. So because they didn't make those adjustments, it's really hard to say this. the results of this study can apply to everybody that we see every day. Another strength is that we can walk away from this study with a little bit of a better understanding about the magnitude of change we're going to see in blood pressure after deprescribing antihypertensive medicine. For some, that magnitude of change in their blood pressure on average might not threaten if they're meeting their blood pressure goal or not. Unfortunately, this study is full of a lot of reasons why someone shouldn't trust it, especially if they don't want to trust it. Um, it's easy to go back on the fact that the researchers set their upper limit of an acceptable blood pressure to a target above what is recommended in current practice guidelines. When they chose 150 over 90 as opposed to 130 over 80, they set the study up to be discredited. So why'd they choose 150 over 90? I can only assume that they did it because it was deemed acceptable for the patient population that they were looking at from an overall evidence standpoint. The risk of harm wasn't much, if any, greater than people who had lower blood pressures. I'd also assume that if to be considered a serious player in the deprescribing research, they needed to enroll a significant number of people. They got 500 people. I would expect that number to be lower if they set a lower blood pressure cut point because there would be a whole cohort within the hypertensive population that they wouldn't be able to include. So when you look at the balance that they had to have of getting an acceptable blood pressure and then getting an acceptable number of patients to have reliable results, uh, I can understand why they chose the 150 over 90 cutoff. The next limitation is that they really didn't have any measurable morbidity and mortality outcomes beyond blood pressure change and the change in patients who remained at a blood pressure target. But as I said, they weren't setting out to be the definitive answer for deprescribing. They were just looking to contribute to the body of evidence that already exists. So the next step is to see if it changes a person's outcome with their health, leading to shorter or less fruitful lives. And if we deprescribe, are we contributing to those shorter lives or are we helping the patient remain and keep the same active life that they were used to? So, Dan, the Optimize isn't the first prospective deprescribing study ever conducted. A few other investigators have examined the potential benefits of deprescribing over the years. How do the results of Optimize compare to previous studies, and why haven't there been more large, randomized, outcome-driven studies yet? Stuart, like you said, and, and, and in truth, there aren't a lot of what we would consider ultimate quality studies on the practice of deprescribing. In 2019, there was a paper in uh, JACC um, that identified about a half dozen cardiology-based clinical trials that looked at two groups and the effects of deprescribing versus usual care. Um, these studies focused on hypertension and dyslipidemia and found that when you removed medicines from an elderly patient, it didn't significantly change the markers used to determine their health, LDL, 
uh, total cholesterol, blood pressure values. In fact, the only cardiology-based trial that found a difference with deprescribing was in patients who had dilated cardiomyopathy. And in that one study, there were a thousand patients and they found that 40% of patients who had one of their medications for their heart failure deprescribed, 40% of them ended up having to restart the medicines because of symptoms. Unfortunately, when you talk about why there aren't many more of these studies out there, we have to discuss that these limited trial numbers are likely due to there not being a lot of money in deprescribing through what we would consider major funders of research. If we want the large studies that follow the good research practices that we want to see, we're going to have to turn to government agencies, health advocacy groups, managed care organizations, or health plans. Um, they're probably going to be able to give the financial resources to complete these deprescribing studies because really it all gets back to how we could manage someone's total health and be fiscally responsible. And so those are the organizations that are going to be invested in that to manage a person's total health and get us better health outcomes. So, Katara, let's go back to the case. Would you consider deprescribing one of LR's antihypertensive medications? And if so, which one? Or should we adjust the doses or perhaps switch one of the medications to something else that we think is safer? And lastly, would you consider conducting a 24-hour or 48-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitoring study to get a better picture of this patient's blood pressure throughout the day? Yes, stewards. I think it would be important to gather a little bit more information before making this decision. Again, where is this patient living and what are their home blood pressure readings? So you raise a great point about the 24-hour or 48-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitoring study. If it were if the patient were able to afford that, certainly I would love to conduct one of those although oftentimes cost is a limitation to conducting that sort of study. So just some regular home blood pressure readings would be helpful here. If we did find that the patient maybe is having frequent falls, they're living in an assisted living facility, um, things like that, I would consider targeting the more relaxed school of less than 150 over 90 as referenced in JNC8 and therefore possibly deprescribing one of his medications or reducing the dose. If I had to choose a medication here, I would lean towards reducing the dose of or eliminating the hydrochlorothiazide due to the number of side effects that can occur. Uh, for example, dehydration, electrolyte disturbances, and then it can also elevate blood sugars. And we know this patient has prediabetes. So for those reasons, I would consider reducing the dose of hydrochlorothiazide in this case. I would continue the ACE inhibitor due to its renal protective benefits. In addition, the calcium channel blocker I would consider keeping because these are generally well tolerated and this patient hasn't complained of any edema um, or any side effects we would expect from a calcium channel blocker. So again, just to reiterate, I feel that it would depend on a lot of things, um, but we could consider deprescribing this patient if just in general we're, we're not doing well overall. Well, Katura, Dan, I want to thank you both for joining me today to discuss the treatment of hypertension in the oldest adults. And I think it's clear from your comments that you believe deprescribing has a place and we should be looking for those opportunities, even if the evidence that we have so far does not prove conclusively 
that patients won't be harmed by the practice. But we do have pretty good evidence that blood pressures won't change in a significant way, that as long as we monitor patients to see what their response is, that it's probably a safe practice. Well, tell us what you think. Only iFormerX members can leave comments and use the interactive features on the site. You can become a member of iFormerX. It's free, so sign up today. And if you'd like to earn continuing education and board recertification credit for reading the commentary and listening to this podcast, just click on the link at the bottom of the written commentary posted on the iFormerX website. We've partnered with the American Pharmacists Association, and they offer iFormerX content as part of their recertification program. So sign up today. Lastly, a special thanks to the many volunteers who make iFormerX possible, including all of the students and residents who join every year and become some of our most loyal members. Indeed, some of our authors and peer reviewers today first joined iFormerX as students or residents. So if you are a resident or a student who recently joined iFormerX, we hope you'll remain a member for years to come and perhaps write a commentary join our advisory board, or peer review for us at some point. Until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, Editor-in-Chief of iFormerX, signing off. Mm-hmm.